Okay, folks, welcome back to episode 43, or it could be 44, I keep losing track, but either way, um, today I have a new guest, um, Dr. Glenn Davison. Hi, Glenn. Hi. Hi, mate. So, um, I've heard you speak before at several lectures, um, the Nutrition Society, I think, last year, or... Um, no, it wasn't the Nutrition Society. It was uh, remind me where did I hear you speak? I think it was the um, the British Nutrition Foundation right. one. Yeah, the British yeah. Nutrition Foundation had a sports nutrition event, and um, um, and I've met you, of course, at uh, University of Kent as well a few years ago. Um, and I know you're going to be lecturing for us in a few weeks on the ISSN diploma. And um, do you want to um, give the listeners an idea about? what it is that you do in terms of your research and what your area of expertise is in? Yeah, my, my broad area is exercise immunology. Um, so the the topics and the areas within that that I'm really interested in are, first of all, how physical activity and exercise influences and affects the immune system. And of course, the immune system defends our body against potential infections, pathogens and so on. Um, so ultimately, why that's important is it because it affects the risk of picking up illnesses and infections. Mm. Um, so ultimately, what I'm interested in is how exercise and physical activity of varying levels affects our susceptibility to illness. And it's a fascinating area on so many levels. I mean, we you know we hear on a day to day level just how important physical activity is, but often it's not really descri- they don't really describe why it's so good for you um, they'll sort of allude to the cardiovascular benefits the effect that it has on energy balance and weight management but it's this idea that physical activity is important or can be detrimental to the immune system um, and also there are nutritional factors that relate to this either by supporting this scenario or um, or, or in one way or the other, um, enhancing this response. And these are the sort of areas that I wanted to get into. And I know you've done a great review um, in um, American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine, a few, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, um, which was titled Nutritional and Physical Activity Interventions to Improve Immunity. But you've got a whole bunch of papers out there, and um, I've been very interested in your work in... Um, in uh, uh, these factors as it relates to gut immunity and um, maybe we can get into some of that but um, do you want to just briefly outline to us then why firstly the immune system is is of interest you know to to those of us that are involved in exercise and nutrition yeah yeah and definitely I mean like like you you mentioned there actually it is important to, to point out that it the effects of physical activity and exercise on the immune system and the risk of illness and infection does actually depend on the type of exercise um, and the, the, the exercise load, if you like. So certain amounts of exercise, generally in line with the, the health guidelines and the health recommendations, seem to be beneficial towards um, immune function and reducing the, the likelihood of picking up illnesses and infections. But there is there does seem to be a tipping point if you like so once the quantity or the intensity or the duration of exercise goes 
over a certain point or a certain level, then we do tend to tip towards the detrimental side. Um, so really high level athletes, in particular endurance athletes, people who have a very high training load and or maybe a, a very strenuous competitive um, season or competitive load as well, they, they do seem to suffer sort of minor detrimental effects on the immune system. And these guys do tend to pick up illnesses um, a little bit more often. Um, so one of the other areas that I'm interested in is how we can try to manage that and support that with nutrition. Because for these guys where, you know, this might be their livelihood or, or their career, simply modifying their training too much, you know, not training as hard as they are is not really an option. They need to do that to be successful. So mm. I'm interested in nutritional countermeasures that we can use to try and um, support those sorts of individuals. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, well, certainly the more people I talk to on this podcast, but also the more I've been reading into this stuff, there's this, there's been this understanding for quite some time, of course, about the importance of periodization of training, not just to try and get the most out of training, but so that you don't wear your athlete down into the ground. And of course, there's various angles there that aren't just immune system related. Um, but it's this idea that I feel that we may also want to periodize our nutrition to support this process, like you say, as a sort of a countermeasure um, is something that seems to be emerging more, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's I think it's sort of a, a good way, before we get into how physical activity and nutrition can influence the immune system and vice versa, could you just describe for folks who are less familiar with the immune system some of the main characteristics to the immune system that sort of are worth laying down as a foundation to this chat we're going to have? Um, I mean, yeah, generally speaking, it's to sort of put it in simple terms, it's the system that the body has to defend against, you know, pathogens, bugs and various other things that might otherwise get into the body and and actually cause illness or cause infection and in the body. So it's basically our defense against those things. It, I mean, there's, a, there's a, a number of functions within the immune system. This is the major one. It has some other um, important functions as well, but the main one is basically protecting the body against pathogens, against illness, against infection. And there's a number of different components, a number of different cells, a number of different tissues and molecules which make up the immune system. It's, it's a really complex orchestrated system um, which has a number of different components and they all work together in synergy in order to, to ultimately protect us. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of different components, but the sort of simple divisions, um, we can split it up into the innate or the, the non-specific arm of the immune system and the adaptive or the specific arm of the immune system. Um, and our innate immune system is the, in some respects, it's almost like a first line defense because this is the non-specific branch of the immune system, which basically recognizes, for example, something as being foreign to the body and then responds in the same way, regardless of, of what it is. If, if it recognizes it as foreign, then it will respond in the same way. The advantage there, of course, is it can react very quickly. 
um, but it's non-specific, and at the same time, you you get some potential collateral damage um, at the site. The adaptive um, or the acquired arm of the immune system is a little bit more slower to kick in, but this is the part of the immune system which we say has immune memory. So this is the part of the immune system that you're activating, for example, when you when you have a vaccination. Um, and this allows the immune system to recognize the pathogen so that on subsequent exposure, it can respond much more quickly and actually prevent um, that particular bug or pathogen from, from actually taking a, a foothold in the body. And again, there's lots of different levels within it. So things as simple as barriers that the body has. So very simply speaking, the, the, the skin acting as a kind of barrier to stop things actually getting into the body in the first place. Or, so that would be a physical barrier. We might have chemical barriers on the lining of, of you know, various potential entrance sites to the body. So the upper respiratory tract, um, being a good example of that. And we have sort of you know chemical defences, um, so various components which we secrete um, in these areas. And then we have other factors like cellular components. And um, so for for example, the white blood cells, the immune cells. Um, which actually function in, you know, I mean, there's a number of different types and they can function in different ways, um, ultimately to to protect the body and, and either prevent an infection from occurring in the first place, or when we do get an infection, try to deal with it and eliminate it and get rid of it from the body as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, great. And of course, that is, you know, I mean, you described it very well. And of course, I think everyone is really familiar with the fact that the immune system is sort of our defense mechanism and it's what we deal with when we get our colds and flus and illnesses and so on but it is also something that's involved um, both positively and negatively in adaptations to training and could you um, I mean this could be a podcast in itself but could you just give us a quick idea why the immune system is important to training adaptations well one of the important mechanisms of, of the immune system is it certain aspects of the immune system are involved in the inflammatory processes and in, in, in um in, inflammation in general and obviously the inflammatory response and then the you know as part of the adaptation response um, can be implicated as quite an important step in physiological adaptation um I, I guess one of the examples is when you think about tissue remodeling so when you think about a particular training stimulus um, that might result in micro damage or micro trauma um, within a various muscle tissue. And then that kind of is the stimulus, if you like, which kickstarts the remodeling um, in order to, you know, remove the old and or damaged tissue and replace it with this new um, tissue or this new, these new cells, um, which are sort of part of that physiological adaptation and part of that process of course in, in um involves actually cleaning cleaning up if you like i guess is one way of putting it so actually removing um debris and you know bits of cells and tissue which are either damaged or which need to be removed um to be replaced and recycled with the new adapted tissue and the immune system is quite crucial in that process so for example the phagocytic cells the 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 type of white blood cell which actually can engulf foreign bodies can actually also engulf um, self-material. So it doesn't just necessarily recognize non-self foreign material, it can recognize self-material 
that needs to be cleared up, if you like. So this could be within, you know, various tissues, but the, I guess the most obvious one is, you know, within skeletal muscle as part of the recovery, remodeling and adaptation process. So we also know that physical physical activity um, has a significant interaction with the immune system and you've already described a bit of how that might relate to adaptations and you inferred at the beginning of course that there's also a relationship between um, exercise and improving the immune system which is potentially one of its sort of medicinal um, benefits but for us that work with active people and athletes we you know I, I guess one of the things that we're particularly uh, you know, we deal with particularly commonly is upper respiratory tract, tract inve- infections, URTIs, which of course have been quite well investigated. Um, I mean, what is the relationship between physical activity, um, the immunity, and susceptibility to URTIs? Um, I mean, it's it it has been very well investigated, but the the field is still quite young. In general, um, but generally speaking, it's similar to the, the sort of what, what I said at the beginning, whereby if you use a sort of what we might call a sedentary or inactive individual as the point of reference, um, they typically tend to pick up about between two and four URTIs per year. And mm. um, obviously, that that will vary in different years depending on whether you know you've got a flu epidemic going around or stuff like that. So it is very much a, a rule of thumb um, and it's the kind of the average. So there will be some people a lot above that and a lot below that. But if that's your kind of average reference point, people who take part in moderate amounts of physical activity, so the, the guys who are basically meeting the physical activity for health guidelines, they tend to suffer around about 50% of that amount. So they tend to get quite a significant reduction in the risk of picking up URTIs, um, whereas the guys who are training very hard, um, so in particular the the high-level endurance athletes, they can pick up um, maybe two to three times as many as the the kind of sedentary reference point um, in a given year. Of course, this is, you know, a very stylized representation, so there is a lot of variability about that. Um, And the things which deter- which I guess contribute to that variability are really down to the nature of the exercise and the training that the individuals are doing. So if they're training more or if they're training harder um, or if they've got a, a, a tougher competitive schedule, then it will probably push them further towards the end of, of that relationship, which means they've got a further increased risk. And then another contributing factor is other. So, so their training or their, their physical activity and we might consider as a stressor, which can contribute to increasing the risk of, of, of this type of infection. And, but that's only one potential type of stressor. There are a whole host of other potential stressors that can contribute um, and either shift that relationship one way or the other. So other stressors that they might have in their life, you know, that could be related to work, it could be related to relationships, money, you know, if they're a professional athlete, it could be related to competition, selection, you know, how long they've got left in their career. It, it's an almost endless list. So there's lots of other mediators which all come into play, which is why we can't actually give a definite answer as to where the tipping point lies um, because it's 
going to be at a different place for every different individual. So it, it really is something that we need to think about on an individual athlete by athlete basis. So, uh, you know, I think this is a fascinating area because, of course, you think of athletes working towards their particular performance goals. And, you know, in the context of an Olympian, for example, you know, they've got a whole four year periodized sort of training plan with various mini competitions in but the ultimate result needs to occur at that point and of course the stress builds up and there's we can talk about this in a second you know there are other factors that contribute to this but you know i guess like in my lab here at guru performance we've got some toys that allow us to assess salivary secretory iga levels for example uh cortisol levels that sort of thing um, but also there's assessing symptoms and various other things. But how how can the practitioner, the nutritionist, the, the coach, the sports scientist gauge where their athlete is or, or for those that aren't athletes but are into their fitness training and want to be able to maybe even view their own symptomology or whatever? I mean, how are they able to determine where they are in this there's potential for a tipping point, if, if that is even possible. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different options and a couple of different things that people can do. Ultimately, it comes down to the resources that they have available to them. So there are some, there are some biomarkers that we can look at. Um, and, and for example, the, the um, saliva secretory IgA that you mentioned mm. um, has been shown to be a really good risk predictor in relation to upper respiratory um, tract illness or infection. So if people have access to equipment like that, then that can be used as a really good monitoring tool to try and figure out when their risk is increased. Um, and, and there's a number of other biomarkers. There, there's a number of biomarkers that are not particularly useful or valuable, certainly not when considered in isolation. Um, and there's a really nice review paper from 2013 um, by Albers and colleagues, that's A-L-B-E-R-S, um, which is an update to an earlier, an earlier paper from 2005, where they basically review the, the usefulness of various markers of immunity um, in relation to, to upper respiratory illness um, in athletes, and in particular in nutrition studies where they actually go through the, the strength and the value of, of all of the different biomarkers. So if you follow the guidelines in, in a paper like that, you can actually pick a really robust set of quantitative, reliable um, and informative biological markers that you can use in order to figure out when athletes are you know, at an increased risk. Um, this, of course, is quite expensive. So it's the sort. This is the sort of thing that is more likely to be available to professional athletes, whereby there's a considerable amount of money um, available within the sport or available to them. Um, but for other, you know, individuals who might not have that sort of resource available to them, then the other kind of side of the spectrum is the is the self-reported. So things like the, there's various um, validated questionnaires and tools that we can use to try to quantify whether somebody is 
ill or whether they're, you know, exhibiting symptoms or whether they, you know, look like they might be getting towards that. Um, the, some of them have been validated, but there is, of course, limitations with any self-report. Um, but I guess as a practical tool for the everyday athlete, um, we, we shouldn't overlook these, these things. They can, they, they can be useful as long as we are aware of the limitations and, and we take that into account when we, when we interpret um, these things. And then the other thing is there are a number of... So, so I guess the, the ultimate outcome is whether or not somebody comes down with an infection. Um, that might be useful to know as an athlete when you need to reduce training or stop training. But I suppose you could also argue that that's actually too late. And actually, if we can use the early warning signs to try and do something before we get ill, um, then that's obviously more beneficial to the athlete. And that's why for the biomarkers that you mentioned can be used as early early warning signs. But again, they're, they're very individually specific. So you kind of need to know what somebody's personal baseline is and monitor changes from that. And then there are... And, and again, for the people who don't have those resources available to them, we can look at things which try to quantify, you know, training load or training stress um, and things like that. So there are, for example, some some kind of stress-related questionnaires that athletes and coaches, every everyday athletes and coaches or recreational athletes can use to try and quantify the, the sort of stress that they might be under to, to maybe help with their planning or their periodization and know when to maybe back off a little bit. Um, and in the current day and age with the, you know, the modern advances in, in sort of some types of technology, which are now more widely available. So things like measuring heart rate variability, which you can do with, you know, some reasonably priced heart rate monitors these days, the, there are indices that you can take from that, which give an indication of the, the stress um, response or the kind of stress that an individual might be under. So tools like that can be used in a practical sense to try and get some handle on whether somebody might be kind of getting closer to tipping that, that balance more towards the negative side of things so that we can then try to intervene or do something about it to, to try and sort of, you know, correct it before something goes wrong. That's great. I, you know, I think it's really, it's really exciting that we're practitioners or coaches uh, from my perspective as a nutritionist can play a role in this um, and I you know I, I think considering the welfare of an athlete's immune system is has not traditionally been something that's been really focused on um, and I and I, I know there's quite a few angles with nutrition which we'll get into in a second but before we do you know, there's, there's, I read a little bit into this, mostly your work, and um, I believe in, in the same way there's some novel training methods like high-intensity interval training to improve um, adaptations to training where there might be, you know, limited time issues or if you want to do concurrent training or whatever and you don't want to spend the whole day doing cardio or whatever. There's, there's some cool stuff that I've discussed in a previous podcast with... Um, Professor Martin Gabala, for example. But are there any... I mean, you know, we, we realise, of course, overtraining as a generalisation is certainly not good for this, but are there any specific training protocols that appear to actually improve immune function or immune strength, to use a non-scientific term? Um, not, not that I'm aware of as such. Um, the... 
basically the most of the research that I'm aware of that that's been done so far tends to have looked at the extremes, if you like. Mm -hmm. So the so the, the 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 kind of that general three point model that I was talking about, which is um, often referred to as the J shaped curve, whereby you know your sedentary individual is the point of reference. A relatively active recreational individual has a reduced risk, and a highly trained athlete um, has a has a higher risk. Um, and basically, most of the research has been done at one of those three points. So, actually, the the exercise studies that have been done to show beneficial effects with training have tended to be taking a group of overweight, inactive individuals and having them do you know three to five times per week of moderate intensity exercise. So, you know. Um, 20 to 40 minutes of, you know, sort of light activity. Um, then the other extreme tends to have been looking at prolonged endurance exercise or periods of intensified training. Um, so we still need to do a lot of work, I think, to fill in some of the gaps. Um, one of the things that I'm personally interested in because of um, the work from, from people like Marty Jabala on the high intensity interval training um, I think as a result of the, the nice work that, that his group um, started producing a number of years ago, showing these huge physiological benefits and adaptations in, in, in performance with just a short period of sprint-based high-intensity interval training, for example, um, in, in just a couple of weeks, I, I kind of realized that, that that message might cause a lot more people to, to do this exercise a lot more. Um, but obviously, being conscious of the, the 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 role of you know various types of training in things like overtraining, overreaching, and stuff like that, I was actually quite interested to know whether if you start to incorporate too much of this type of training into a regular um, training regime, does it is it okay? Is it sort of more or less beneficial than the the more traditional endurance training, for example, um, when we look at the immune system? Um, so I, I have actually started doing this. Um, I, I published a study a few years ago in Applied Physiology, Nutrition and Metabolism, just looking at the immune responses to, to the first session of that um, sprint-based version of, of that high-intensity interval training. And it seemed to be comparable in some of the immune markers that I looked at to more prolonged exercise in that some of them did come down. But actually a lot of them didn't change as much so from that perspective it looks like that type of training could actually be physiologically beneficial without actually having as much of a negative effect on the immune system compared to something like a prolonged um, bout of endurance exercise having said that that was just the first session of and you know these things are typically done in a kind of intensified period of training um, so what I'm currently in the process of doing actually is is following that study up and and looking at what happens more chronically when when people do this training a little bit longer term um but i haven't actually got around to running the analysis on those particular samples yet so they're still sitting in my um freezer now waiting waiting for analysis but hopefully i'll be able to give you an update on on the kind of more long-term and chronic implications of, of that type of training in the in the not too distant future brilliant Brilliant. Yeah, I look forward to, to hearing that when it comes out. And um, it makes me uh, worry about what else you keep in your freezer back at home, Glenn. <laughs> get, the wrong thing, get the wrong thing out for dinner. Oh, dear. Um, 
freezer. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Uh, so when one reads a little bit into this stuff, um, there's obviously a bit more um, in the area, in the more clinical areas. And one one word that comes up a bit is is this this term um, immunosenescence. Um, yeah. And, and from what I've seen, it, it does appear to be a primary factor that contributes to increased infection susceptibility and, um, you know, is influence or influences how people deal with things like vaccinations and, and maybe even the strategies that we're going to talk about. But could you explain to the folks what, what I'm even talking about here? I mean... Really simply, immunosenescence is generally talking about the decline in immune function that we get with aging. Mm. Um, one of the main contributing factors, or one of the main things that's believed to contribute to this um, decline in immune function as we age um, is something what we call an overcrowding of, of the immune space. Um, so if you remember sort of um, a little bit earlier on in the in, in this discussion when I talked about the adaptive immune system and one of the ways that the adaptive immune system works is by first of all recognizing a pathogen um, and then developing immune memory so that if you're exposed to that same pathogen again you can actually respond really quickly and and actually prevent it from even taking a foothold in the body before any symptoms have developed. Mm. For that process to work we actually need um, a specific subpopulation of, of immune cells. Um, so in particular, something that we call naive T cells or naive T lymphocytes. Um, and these, it's, it's the role of, so I guess these naive cells are involved in this kind of, mem in the initiation and in the development of this immune memory. And there's, we say that there's a kind of a certain amount of space within the immune system. So the space that we're talking about is basically the proportion of these immune cell subsets, which are naive and therefore able to subsequently develop into um, or develop those memory functions later on. Um, and one of the things that happens as we age is we, we, we get a lower proportion of these naive cells and they're replaced by... Um, kind of expanded clones of effector cells, which basically mean they, they, it's because, you know, we've had a lifetime um, of being exposed to new and novel pathogens. And basically we were, we're starting to overcrowd this immune space. Um, so as a result of this overcrowding, it means that we're a little bit less able to develop immune memory to a new novel pathogen later on. So generally speaking, immunosenescence is just talking about the decrease in immune function that we get with aging. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's worth mentioning because, of course, we deal with people with varying ages and we, we, we just can't assume that, that this whole process is a black and white sort of on and off switch. Um, there are multiple factors that when we, as practitioners, perform a needs analysis on our athletes or our you know, clients or whatever, you know, th there are a number of things you need to consider. And I think that it was certainly worth discussing, you know, how age could could be a factor in this. So um, we talked a lot about the immune system and, and various characteristics to the immune system. Um, but very specifically, which is sort of an area that I 
I'm obviously more interested in, in is the nutritional sort of intervention side of this. And I know that nutrition has some some more obvious influences to overall general health and wellness, but um, I, I've certainly seen you and heard you describe direct and indirect effects on immune responses. Um, two challenges from things like foreign agents and how they can be manipulated by diet and so on. So could you possibly... Um, explain what those direct and indirect effects are. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, the some of the reasons as to why exercise has an influence on the immune system um, is because of the other responses that it causes in the body. Um, so one of the factors that has historically been implicated as a as a kind of causal or a mechanistic. Um, factor contributing to, for example, decreased immune function after a very prolonged and strenuous bout of exercise are things like the stress hormone response. Um, so if we have an intervention, if we have a nutritional um, strategy or a nutritional manipulation which, ha- which directly influences the immune response to exercise, um, then I-, I guess an example of that is if you consume a substance and the mere presence of that substance acts directly on the immune cells or another component of the immune system when it gets into the body, we would describe that as a direct effect, whereby an indirect effect would be that that nutritional supplement or that nutritional intervention affects a different physiological response and that physiological response is known to affect the immune system but it's not directly affecting the cells or the effectors it's affecting something else which then subsequently affects it so the two i guess textbook examples of of direct and indirect is um carbohydrate availability is known to be important for optimal functioning of the immune cells the immune cells are highly metabolically active cells and in order to, to carry out their functions properly they need to consume a lot of energy and they get a lot of that energy from carbohydrate metabolism. So if there's if there's a stress on carbohydrate availability that these cells, you know, are not able to access sufficient carbohydrate to carry out their functions, then that could potentially have a, a negative impact on the functioning of said immune cells. And if we therefore provide additional carbohydrate that actually makes the carbohydrate availability back up to normal for these cells, then we would say that's a direct effect. Alternatively, if we affect the stress hormone response, so some stress hormones like cortisol have been suggested to be immunodepressive. And if we do something which affects the cortisol response and the cortisol response might affect the immune response, then if we take something that affects the cortisol response, we would say that that's having an indirect effect. So... I, you know, one thing that, that springs to mind here is this this idea that carbohydrates, um, which we've discussed many a time on this podcast, we've um, talked very much about the benefits of um, low, you know, adaptations to low carbohydrate training on things like uh, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, improving fat oxidation, that sorts of things. We've had many a discussion with people like. Um, Dr. James Morton about that stuff. I've got someone else coming on soon, uh, Trent Stellingworth actually, and we're going to talk about 
the importance of carbohydrates to performance and maybe periodization and, and so on. But it, it's this other thought, given that carbohydrate restriction or, or low-carb or keto diets is becoming really quite popular, it, it's, the, it's this idea that, that hang on, um, it's not just about increasing fat oxidation, it's not just about um, you know mitochondrial biogenesis or whatever, um, we also need to bear in mind that carbohydrates plays a role in the immune response and yeah. that could be a more important factor to the overall um, goals or scenario that your athlete's finding himself in. Yeah, I think we, I think we need to look at the, the big picture as well because regardless of what physiological benefits you might get from these things, I think that there's really good evidence um, that exercising in a carbohydrate depleted state increases the immune perturbation and subsequently increases the incidence of of illness and infection so although there's a lot of good evidence that you might well there's i guess an increasing body of evidence showing potential benefits of of doing certain things in in carbohydrate depleted or carbohydrate dis, um, restricted states but i think I think it's important, I'm not arguing completely against it, but I think it's important to also consider the fact that if you're not careful with that, you could increase the risk of illness. And if that ultimately means you miss training time, then you might be, as a result, undoing all of the benefits that you gained from, you know, from maybe doing that in the first place. Yeah, and that's why I, I like this idea of periodization, not only of training, but of nutrition and various other things. And you know, I, I think I, I, I think this way myself with my clients, but I also try and get my students to, to ask themselves a question, you know, with whatever strategy you're going to recommend, you know, and there's lots of options in that toolbox that we have. What is the main purpose of that strategy? Um, but like you say, how does that also fit into the bigger picture? Because you might yes. be overly focused into that, you know the molecular signaling for example but what impact might that have like you know if you're you're so obsessed by improving fat oxidation but on the other hand um you know you're having a negative impact on their uh, immune system and we're getting a bit too close to those olympics you know is it is it the right time to be using that strategy because of course all of these things work if timed properly which is um why I always talk about the importance of context. You know, in what context are we talking about carbohydrate restriction? You know, on the one hand, yes, it has all those performance or endurance benefits or whatever, but we also know it has performance benefits. Well, of course, it goes beyond that. It's it's also about the immune system. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what about nutrition generally? Um, you know, the quality of a person's diet i mean one thinks logically that's going to have an impact on the immune system you know things like vitamin and mineral levels that sort of thing yeah definitely i mean this it's the, the this could almost be talking about anything um in terms in terms of it's very similar to probably a lot of the, the the talks you've had before a lot of the things that you teach your students um, but the same is true for the immune system, and that and that is basically if a deficiency is not a good thing. Um, so if you're deficient in anything, it will probably have a negative effect on the immune system, and almost certainly have a negative effect on how the immune system responds to a stressor. 
in particular total energy deficiency um protein deficiency and carbohydrate deficiency and also um certain micronutrient deficiencies so obviously the most pragmatic recommendation is just don't be deficient mm-hmm. and of course you can easily do that with a with a with a diet with a normal healthy and balanced diet um sometimes of course people do intentionally go into negative energy balance for example so this is when we we might need to start to think about you know what's the the most optimal way to do that in view of also kind of getting the minimal disruption um to the immune system and but the general consensus is that deficiency isn't a good thing um in this context that doesn't however necessarily mean that taking extra above what an individual's personal requirements are is going to be beneficial and actually there's there's not really good evidence um for most nutrients and most dietary nutrients that taking additional intake above what we might consider as is normal for a, for an individual um generally speaking doesn't doesn't seem to be be further beneficial with a couple of potential exceptions to that yeah and we i've done i've done quite a few of these podcasts now like i announced at the beginning this is number 43 or number 44 doing so many i'm losing i'm losing count but um i we did a great podcast with dr graham close um a little earlier on in the series on the role of vitamin d which of course is one of his areas of expertise and that was fascinating because of course in the old days that was all about bone health but we now know it's so much more than that um immune system and and so on and listeners can refer to that podcast for um you know for uh, for a lot more on that of course dr close's research and papers and also another area that graham close is interested in was antioxidants and i recall a lecture that he gave about this and that is an area that that people do tend to get to go a little crazy with um they think about antioxidants and the protective roles that they're supposed to have but just briefly what what are sort of the pros and cons you feel of of antioxidants and by that i mean obviously we get them from a a natural diet but people do look to supplement more of them yeah it's so common in particular vitamin c is really really common um there's and i think it goes back to some of the older studies suggesting that high doses of vitamin c can help prevent the common cold or influenza or recover more quickly um, from infection and in in the sports nutrition or in the exercise immunology field there's some older studies showing that high dosages of vitamin C reduce infection incidence in ultramarathon runners in the couple of weeks after taking part in a in an ultramarathon and um, so these are studies from the sort of late 80s early 90s um and i think that's one of the reasons why there is a kind of general perception that antioxidants things like vitamin c are good for the immune system and are beneficial in reducing um the risk of illness and infection in athletes however there's been with the exception of those early studies there's been many studies since then where they've actually found no benefit um from high doses of of antioxidant intake in terms of the effects on the immune system um and one study in particular a few years ago now um from David Neiman's lab where they actually showed that a very high dose of vitamin C and vitamin E together um in participants taking place in an Ironman triathlon 
the, the guys getting the antioxidants actually had a higher inflammatory response um, than the placebo. So it actually tipped the balance beyond kind of additional antioxidant benefit and actually tipped it towards a more pro-oxidant um, effect. So personally, I think once we've got sufficient from a diet, um, then taking extra is not necessarily a good thing, especially when you look at the growing body of evidence that's out there now um, showing potential detrimental effects to things like physiological adaptation. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure if you, if you read some of Graham's earlier papers, I don't know if he'd have spoken about this in, in his past, um, there's, there's pretty good evidence to show that, that it can, you know, too much of a good thing, if you like, can, can actually have um, negative and detrimental effects. Yes, yes, we haven't uh, done that one yet. We, um, I, for the ISSN diploma, Graham gave um, a fantastic lecture all about that, which um, perhaps I'll get Graham back on to, to discuss. Um, but there are a few other things that I know that can support this process. And perhaps since we're really more or less at the end of this podcast now, I'd like to um, get you back, if I can, to discuss some very useful immune-enhancing foods, um, particularly um, colostrum and, and probiotics. I, uh, that, that lecture that I attended um, at the British Nutrition Foundation and I think was in association with the EIS um, was fascinating and that I think is worthy of a, a podcast. And of course probiotics and I um, recently read a, a, an awesome review in the European Journal of Sports Sciences um, as part of a, a recent nutrition strategy series on uh, a review by David Pine on uh, probiotics and um, you know I mean perhaps you could just give us a, if it's even possible a just a, a one or two minute because you could talk for hours on those two things yeah. and, and maybe we'll we'll leave it at that and and as a as a taster for a, a, another podcast a bit further down the line yeah okay yeah i mean the the um bovine colostrum one um has, has been around for quite quite a while um and there's there's quite a lot of research now showing um beneficial effects to immune defense um so there's there's quite a few papers um one one also from my lab showing that individuals who are taking part in you know relatively high amounts of physical activity and training if they do use that particular supplement then we were seeing a reduction in upper respiratory tract illness and an improvement in immune function um well typically you're looking at between about a 30 to 50 percent reduction um so you know if somebody's usually getting four illnesses per year that might come down to, to two or three um with that particular supplement um, and likewise, um, probiotics, um, there's some good work from, from Pine's lab, um, also from Mike Gleason's lab um, up in Loughborough, showing that um, individuals who use that particular supplement during a sort of training season. So one study in particular, they had a group of endurance athletes during the winter training season, and the group that had probiotics had beneficial effects on some markers of mucosal immunity, and they also got ill less often. Um, so yeah, I guess in a nutshell, there's, that's, that's kind of what we know about those two particular supplements, that they can have beneficial effects um, on the immune system, and they do generally tend to reduce the, the incidence of upper respiratory illness, 
But as you said, yeah, we, we could talk about this for, for a long time, going yeah. into the mechanisms and yeah. a lot of the, so the um, issues and some controversies around some of these different things. So, yeah, I think that would be really nice to talk about that. Yeah. No, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd, I, I think that's for another time. Um, so, I mean, you know, basically to summarise then, there are many lifestyle factors um, that can influence immunity and obviously there's there's the training side of it there's the nutrition side of it there's wellness there's a whole other thing I'm doing a podcast on soon which is sleep um, there are many many factors but it is an important topic that's worth you know discussing which um, I'm very grateful for your time today Glenn and, and helping uh, me and the listeners understand a bit more about this stuff and Clearly, um, there's more to discuss, so look forward to getting you back. Just briefly, I always end these podcasts with a bit of information about how people can find out more about um, you and your research and what you're teaching and so on. So presumably you, um, at your university, there's a website or, or whatever. Yeah, if, if, you, if you Google um, Glenn Davison, University of Kent, it should take you to my um, university profile page and then that's got information on the research that I do and the research groups that I'm in and links to my um, recent publications and stuff like that so yeah if if you found this interesting yeah please do go and have a look at that no absolutely brilliant I'm uh it's been a long time uh, coming but I'm creating pages per podcast and we'll put your references and some of your papers and links and so on into that so people can look up more and of course a link to your uh, website, but of course you're coming to speak for us um, on exercise immunology and also nutrition and exercise immunology on the ISSN diploma in a few weeks. So we look forward to seeing you here in London, um, um, and uh, people can learn more about the ISSN diploma at issndiploma.com. We're we're also uh, there's an opportunity to move on to a an MSc at Middlesex University, where I'm also the program leader at Middlesex. Uh, in the new sports and exercise nutrition masters but as usual all details um, on everything we do at Guru Performance and all the educational stuff that I'm involved with is at guruperformance.com so of course I'm Laurel Bannock and um, once again thank you Glenn thank you very much it was a pleasure great stuff okay well that's the end of this podcast and uh, we look forward to bringing another one back to you all very soon